There's a, a temptation that, that churches and Christians face when we get too comfortable. Um, when we begin to feel like we're not really being threatened, we're not being attacked, we've kind of uh, locked out our own little place, comfortable place in society. Um, what happens often is we get bored. And, and then when churches get bored, they stop doing the things that they normally do because, well, those things are kind of boring. We want to do something exciting and fun and flashy. And so what happens is they, they decide we were going to spice things up a little bit. And so churches with big budgets, they get big light shows and fog machines and hire professional musicians. They're, there was a church in, our, uh, in my previous town, and it actually was a good church, so I'm not, but they would brag repeatedly about how their lighting system in their church was the same show that, same lighting system that David Letterman used on his set. Um, they were still a faithful church, but that was not a great idea. And so we want to spice things up, and, and churches with smaller budgets try to do the same thing, but they just don't do them very well. And one of, the, one of the things that, one of the truths that we see throughout God's word is that there's, there's power, actually, in the ordinary and the mundane. Not necessarily in the big, flashy, showy stuff. And I was listening to a podcast, I don't remember, it was a few months ago, and I don't even remember which podcast it was. But they were interviewing um, an Olympic coach. Okay, so this is a guy that, that trains Olympic athletes, right? He's training the, the best of the best, right? People who have achieved like the peak performance, right? Human greatness, right? And, and the things that they do are pretty awe-inspiring, right? That's why we watch the Olympics. That's why we watch professional sports, that kind of thing. And so they're doing these great feats. And so they asked the coach, they said, what's the key? What is the key for moving from being just a good athlete to being a great, like, world-class athlete? And he said, willing to be bored. That's what it is. Because training is boring. You do the same thing every day over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And it's boring but they keep doing the boring thing because they know that the boring thing is what they need to do to get to where they want to be, to do the bigger, great thing. They, they don't need the big, flashy training programs. They don't need the $5,000 Peloton bike. They don't, they don't need... They just need to persevere doing the boring, ordinary, mundane training things. And it's a reminder for us in the church that there's power in the boring, mundane, ordinary things. Can daily Bible reading become boring? Yes. And I'm the pastor. Yes. It can be boring. Get into numbers and read two chapters of Chron chronologies, right? It's boring. It's okay. 
it's, but does that mean you stop doing it because it's boring? No. Because that's what God has given us to do what he's called us to do in the world. You come to God's word because it trains you, it corrects you, it rebukes you, it completes you, it, it kills sin in you, it does a ton of work. And so it doesn't matter if it's boring. God has called you to do it because that's what, how he works in your life to transform you into the person that he's called you to be. It's not flashy, it's not showy, but it's powerful. Can coming to church every Sunday morning be boring? Yes. Even for the pastor. <laughs> Sorry. And, and are there mornings when you show up to church and the singing is not great? Yes. Is there mornings when you show up to church and the pastor just drones on and on? Yes. I realize that. It's okay. Does that mean you stop coming to church because it's boring? No. Because this is the training that God has given us to be the people he's called us to be in the world. It doesn't matter if it's flashy and showy. and It just has to do what it's meant to do. You show up at church because it lifts your eyes above this world for a moment and helps you remember who our God is and what he's doing. It kind of reorients you from being out in the world all week and reminds you, no, we serve a God and here's what he's called us to do. You hear his word preached and you're corrected and you're rebuked and you're equipped. We participate in the sacraments where we're fed and nourished. But it's all pretty mundane, ordinary stuff. But there's power in it. And, you know, that's one of the things um, we're actually seeing in this passage. It, it, it's kind of interesting because usually, even when I've preached on passage on the you know the triumphal entry, the the focus is on the grandeur and the power and all the the glory of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And yet, the way that John tells the story is a little different, and he's emphasizing actually the ordinary and the mundane. Because what we're, what we're seeing in this passage is that we've got these different groups of people and everybody has a different idea of what the kingdom is and how the kingdom comes. You have the crowd, they have a different idea of what the kingdom is and how the kingdom comes. And you have the Sanhedrin, they have a different idea of what the kingdom is and how the kingdom comes. And then you have Jesus showing them, here's what the kingdom is and here's how the kingdom comes. And the crowd has all of the kind of flash, right? And all of the, like, the light shows and the fog machine. I mean, it's it's pretty spectacular moment, right? Because there's, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. I don't think we fully realize how packed Jerusalem is when the Passover comes. We don't know exactly how many were there at this moment. But, like, 20 years later, a Jewish historian named Josephus said there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And that's not including foreigners, and that's not including the Jews who are unclean and not able to participate in it. So we're talking like 3 million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And just to help you get perspective on that, I looked up how big, what's the population of Milwaukee and the surrounding suburbs, like metropolitan Milwaukee. 1.5 million. Okay, so we're talking double coming into Jerusalem. So 
Lots of people packed into a, into a town. And, and on top of that, we read this is going on. The crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Right? So when we read about Lazarus being raised from the dead, we were reminded there were a lot of people there just to see that event because Mary and Martha and Lazarus were pretty popular people. So a lot of people saw it happen. Then they went back into Jerusalem that's now packed full of people and they continued to bear witness. And and really you could say the way it's just written is that they kept on talking about it. They wouldn't stop talking about it. They just went through Jerusalem nonstop telling people what they saw. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And so it's spreading through a town with three million people in it. You can kind of see how this would quickly turn into a spectacle. Something crazy is going on. And we're told, actually, the reason why the crowd went out to meet Jesus was that they heard he had done this sign. And so that's why they were going out to see Jesus. They heard that he had raised Jesus, Lazarus, from the dead. And because they had heard about it, because people were witnessing about it. And what's really powerful about this is that, um, remember last week what the Sanhedrin did, right? Two weeks ago we had talked about the Sanhedrin decided Jesus needed to die, right? Last week we saw they put out this kind of public proclamation that if, if you know where Jesus is, you have to tell us so that we can arrest him. And there's kind of a threat implied. If you don't tell us, you're going to get in trouble. Well, guess what? We see the exact opposite here happening, right? We see massive amounts of people who know exactly where Jesus is. They're not telling the Sanhedrin. They're not telling the Pharisees about it. They're they're not worried about themselves getting punished by the authorities. They're just going out to meet Jesus and worship him. And and a lot of this is because there's this, um, what did I, like a messianic longing, right? The the Jewish people at the time, they felt weak, they felt weary, they felt worn down, they felt helpless, and and so they were longing for the Messiah to come and to to save them, to to rescue them from it. That's why they, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now that's straight out of Psalm 118, which is a, a psalm that they sang all the time, and they all knew this was about the Messiah. And even Hosanna just means, save us. Save us now. Right now, right? So they're, they're looking to Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem, and they're crying out to him as the Messiah, saying, we need you to save us. Please save us. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, saying, we know, we've seen what you've said, we've seen what you've done, we know you're the one who came from God. We know you're the Messiah. We also know you are the King of Israel. And so they're not just welcoming him in as a Messiah, they're welcoming him in as a Messiah King. And, and one of the things I think it's important for us to know that, you know, all of the, the palm branches and all of the shouting and the celebration as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, that was actually a very normal practice for welcoming a king into the city. That's just what they did back then. The, the wording... It's, it's easy to miss this. It says they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. 
And that word to meet is a Greek word. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's apontesis, if that means anything to you. Um, but it was a word that that's what they did when a king came into the town. And so what they would do normally is a town would hear that the king was coming and they would send out a delegation to leave the town to go meet the king as he came. And then as they met the king, they would follow him into the town with singing and shouting and praising. And, and the king would come into town and there would be a big celebration and they would make sacrifices and they would set prisoners free. It would be this huge thing. It, it would be similar to if we found out the president was coming to Beaver Dam, right? We would set things up and welcome them into the city, and we would do that kind of a thing. Um, that's what they did. And so as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, they say, this guy, we're going to welcome him in as a king. We're going to go out to meet him. We're going to wave palm branches. We're going to call him our Messiah King. And they had no idea what they were actually saying. <laughs> Right, that's, it's, it's, the beauty of this is how John, we've seen this the last few weeks, right, where people have said things that meant more than they actually thought it was meaning, right? Caiaphas said, it's better for one man to die for the nation. He didn't actually know what he was saying. Mary anoints Jesus for his death, not knowing she was anointing him for his death. Now we see the crowds crying out, welcoming Jesus as the Messiah, welcoming Jesus as the King, but they actually had no idea what it meant. Because remember, John says they're only proclaiming this because they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And they think, this guy, if he can raise people from the dead, he surely can fix our nation. So there's this kind of idea that like the kingdom is something different from what it is. And the kingdom comes through these big, flashy, raising someone from the dead and all of these big, flashy things. The Sanhedrin, they have a different idea of what the kingdom is and how the kingdom comes. Because the Sanhedrin, the, the kind of religious leaders, are watching this spectacle. They're watching all of these people come out to worship Jesus. And they see nothing beautiful in this at all, right? They, they hate it, right? You hear at the end, they're almost in despair. The, the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world's gone after him, right? Like, all they see is all of their plans, all of their purposes fading away, right? As people are welcoming Jesus in as the king, all they see is their kingdom fading away, right? They're losing all of their power, they're losing all of their authority, and they hate it. And one of the things I think that's really important to notice in this passage, and we've been kind of seeing it recently, is that the Sanhedrin has, thinks that the kingdom is their kingdom, and they think that the kingdom comes through power and authority, right? That's why they see Jesus as a threat to their kingdom, and so what's their solution to the problem? We're going to kill him. Right? And they see people going after Jesus, trying, believing in Jesus, and then they threaten them. We talked about this a number of months ago where they said, if you believe in Jesus, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. We're going to remove you from the Jewish people. That's how we're going to bring the kingdom, power and authority. We see this morning, we see this. The chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Why? Because on account of Lazarus, the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus, right? It's all power. It's all authority. Like anybody gets in the way of our kingdom, we're just gonna, we're gonna whack them. They're dead. 
Get rid of them. Move on. That's how we bring the kingdom. And yet, what I find funny is that amidst of all of the power and the authority they're placing, they are in despair at this moment because they realize nobody cares. There's a lot of people out there. They don't care about our authority. They don't care about our power. Uh, they're just they're coming out to praise Jesus. So they think the kingdom is theirs, and the kingdom comes through power and authority. The crowd thinks the kingdom's kind of about them, and, and then it comes through all of this kind of showy, flashy, big-time things. And uh, Jesus has, like, the perfect response in the midst of this, uh, because he comes into the city in his own way. He's not going to come into the city the way the Pharisees want him to come into the city, and he's not going to enter the city the way the crowds want him to enter the city. He comes into the city his own way. The crowds, maybe even the Sanhedrin, really, would have loved for Jesus to come entering into Jerusalem on a war horse, surrounded by an army, marching in on Jerusalem, coming in to overtake it, overthrow it, do something big, something spectacular, maybe even a chariot. You know, just let's ramp this thing up, make it a showy, flashy, power, authority, all of that. And Jesus says, no, I'm actually going to ride in on a donkey. And it's intentional, right? The, the passage actually says it's not only just Jesus fulfilling prophecy that the king would come in riding on a donkey, but we're told that Jesus picked out a donkey. Other passages, we're told he sent the disciples to go get a donkey. So he's riding in on a donkey intentionally trying to show the crowd that he is a different king. He's not the king that they think he is. And he's showing the, the Sanhedrin that the kingdom's not about power and authority. He's showing the crowd. It's not about all the flash and the glamour that actually the kingdom is something more ordinary, mundane, humble. And he, he points them back to that prophecy in Zechariah. It says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. And, and, and I wish I had more time to get into this whole prophecy from the Old Testament, but it's prophesying a king coming in, riding on a donkey, and bringing peace. Right? And so they're thinking, this king's going to bring peace through power and authority. Through, And Jesus is saying, no, I'm the Messiah. I'm coming in. I'm a king. I'm coming in on a donkey, but I'm coming in to bring peace. And as you welcome me into the city, there will be peace, there will be a sacrifice, and prisoners will be set free. Just like any time another king enters into the city. But the sacrifice is going to be very different than you expect. And the, the way that prisoners are set free is going to be very different than expect. The, the, the kingdom comes through unexpected and humble, mundane ordinary acts. And that's what Jesus is doing everything he can actually to kind of temper things down a little bit to remind them that there's an ordinariness to the kingdom. I was thinking, uh, um, trying to like picture what this might look like today in the United States. Don't read too much into what I'm about to say because this could, you could think I'm being really political. I'm not. But just picture the situation with Jesus and put it today. Imagine that we've just elected a new president. Okay, and, and people are going crazy. They're excited that this president's going to save the country, right? And so they're, they're like descending upon Washington, D.C. as he's 
moving into Washington, D.C. And so you've got some people who are really excited. You have other people who are really angry about it. Because they've been trying to use all of their power and authority to try to like downplay his influence. They've been trying to shut it down so he didn't. They, they failed. So the, one group really excited he's going to save the country. One group really angry they, they didn't save the country. And, and as they kind of come in and as he's coming into Washington, D.C., the presidential motorcade's pulling in and he's driving his own vehicle and he's driving an old, beat-down, rusted-out GMC pickup. Because that's worse than a Ford pickup, just so you're... Now, if the president did that, you would immediately go, why is he doing that? He's trying to tell us something, right? He's trying to show us something here. Now, I'm not going to get in... Now, I'm not comparing the president to the Messiah, anything like that. But, but that's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to show them that this is different than they think it is. It's about being humble. It's about ordinary things. It's about mundane things. It's not about power. The kingdom comes on a donkey. And, and it's a reminder that as we see Jesus coming into the city, we know what's going to happen. And the kingdom also comes like paradoxically. Like, because our, the kingdom advances from our king willingly humbly riding a donkey into a city and then willingly, humbly laying his life down as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the sacrifice that takes place. That's how prisoners are set free. It doesn't come through the pomp and the circum... You know, all of that doesn't come through this. No, our king hangs on a cross with a sign above his head saying, King of the Jews. And it's a contrast to what we've seen from the Sanhedrin, for sure. Because the Sanhedrin are trying to advance the kingdom by doing what? By laying down other people's lives. Like, we're going to kill an innocent man, Jesus. Oh, now Lazarus got in the way. We're going to lay down his life, too, to advance the kingdom. Where Jesus says, no, the kingdom comes by me willingly, humbly laying down my life. And it, it's a reminder for us against this temptation that, that we're going to face regularly. Not just in the church, but just in our own Christian lives. We, we're always looking for the big flashy moment, right? That's why retreats are a big thing. We want the mountaintop experience. We want the big thing. We want the flashy lights and the fog machines. and the. But the kingdom doesn't come that way. The kingdom comes through ordinary, mundane acts of following Jesus. Um, or we maybe don't go for the flashy part of it, but we start to fall into the trap thinking the kingdom's going to come through power and authority, right? We, we can fall into the trap of thinking the kingdom's going to come if we get the right guy elected, or the right laws in place, or the right whatever. Or, or the kingdom's going to come if we just can get out there and we can guilt people into doing what we want them to do. Guilting people is just another form of exerting power and authority. Just a little more passive-aggressive. But the kingdom doesn't come that way. The kingdom comes on a donkey. It comes in humble, ordinary ways. That's why Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small. 
seems insignificant, weak, worthless, boring, until it keeps on growing slowly, slowly, slowly growing until it fills the whole earth. And then everything finds shade under its branches. Nothing flashy about it, but it's powerful. The kingdom comes through regular, ordinary, mundane, boring ways. And uh, we see that one of the ways in this passage, I, I want to point out two, two little things quick. Um, one of the ways that God uses to bring the kingdom, it's important to recognize that God uses these things. We don't ever bring this about in our own efforts. But one of the things that God uses is, is just people doing, being a faithful witness. Right? What, what, what led to this chaos outside the city? Was it planned? Was it orchestrated? I don't think so. It was the result of people doing what? Going through Jerusalem, telling people who Jesus is, what he did. It wasn't a huge evangelism campaign. It wasn't a huge marketing effort. It was just people going through the city saying, you know, we saw this guy do this thing, and it was really crazy. You should go check him out. It's not flashy. It's kind of boring. It's kind of mundane, and yet it's powerful. They just kept talking about Jesus wherever they went. That's how the kingdom comes. Today, still for us, we go out from here, go out into the world and talk about Jesus. Whether we're at the grocery store, whether you're at work, and wherever, you, you just keep talking about him and the word spreads and people want to check it out. It's not flashy, but it's powerful. And, and it's the reminder that ultimately... The reason we do that is because we recognize that the kingdom doesn't come through our own efforts. The kingdom comes through the gospel. And God works through the gospel. As we share the gospel and we point people to Jesus, God works through that. And he calls people to himself. And he not only cleanses their hearts, but he, he transforms their hearts and their lives. And that's how the kingdom comes. And it's not always flashy, I, I bet if you look at your life and look at the transformation that has happened in your life since you believed in Jesus, it is not very flashy. Uh, sometimes it's a little shameful. <laughs> and we're like, I don't want people to see how slow it has been for my life to be transformed by Christ. And yet, it's happening slowly, powerfully, like a mustard seed transforming your life. That's how the kingdom comes. It seems ordinary kind of boring, and yet it's powerful. And, you know, one of my, one of my favorite lines, I, I try to remind people of, of the power of this, is that changed hearts, right? When, when, we, when we believe in the gospel, we're cleansed of our sin, right? Our, our souls are restored, and yet our hearts are changed. He said, I'm going to rip out your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Your heart is going to change. And it's a reminder that changed hearts change lives. And then changed lives change families. And then changed families change churches and change communities. And changed communities change states and nations and worlds. That's how the kingdom comes. Through the gospel. Through people hearing the gospel, being forgiven of their sins, and having their hearts 
changed. And it's slow, painstaking work, frustrating at times. And yet, it's powerful when we faithfully do the work that God has called us to do. Let's come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we come into your presence thankful for the way that you work in the world. Thankful for the slow, steady, persevering, non-relenting way your kingdom breaks into the world. And Father, we come to you and confess our own sins in this, that we are we're an impatient people. We want what we want, and we, and we want it now. And so we get impatient with your methods. We get impatient with the work that you've called us to do. We try to whip up things on our own. We get prideful and arrogant, thinking we know how to do this better than you've told us how to do this. And so, Father, we come and we confess those sins to you now. And we ask that you would forgive us from those sins. We ask that you would cleanse us. We also ask that you would transform our hearts and reshape our lives so that as we live in the world, we would increasingly become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, and that our hearts would be transformed and our lives would be transformed and our families, our churches and communities would be transformed by the gospel and that we wouldn't just get bored with the mundane acts of the kingdom but we would faithfully keep our eyes on you, taking one step after the next as we see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All God's people said, amen.